This episode is sponsored by NOAA, an audio journalism app obsessed with helping you know more about news that matters. The first 100 people to visit newsoveraudio.com forward slash media tribe will get a week free to listen to articles from Foreign Affairs, Bloomberg and the Irish Times plus 50% off. Welcome to Media Tribe, the podcast that's on a mission to restore faith in journalism. I'm Shona Kinnair, an award-winning journalist with over 10 years of experience working for some of the biggest news outlets in the industry. Every week, I'm going to introduce you to some of the world's most respected journalists, filmmakers and media executives, and you're going to hear the story behind the storyteller. You'll get a sense of the integrity and hard graft that's involved in journalism, and hopefully you'll go away feeling that this craft is worth valuing. I mean, there are these elections of 2016. We really had no idea at the time how completely vulnerable our democracies were. You know, the evidence of what happened in those elections is locked away in Facebook servers and they are still absolutely refusing to give it up. My guest today is Carol Cadwallader, the journalist from The Guardian and Observer who broke the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Carol's investigation resulted in Mark Zuckerberg being called before Congress and Facebook losing more than $100 billion from its share price. Carol Cadwallader, you're so welcome to the Media Tribe. Thanks. Hi, Shauna. Thanks so much for having me on. I enjoy listening to these, so it's a bit intimidating, actually. Oh, not at all, Carol. Well, we, we eventually pressed record after a half an hour chat talking about our all of our mutual friends, a lot of them Irish. But actually, it was Dorothy Byrne from Channel 4 who said, you must get Carol on the podcast. So I'm delighted she did. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks, Dorothy. Carol, do you want to kickstart the interview and tell us how you got into journalism? Um, how did I get into journalism? I got into journalism... In fairness, I had no idea how to get into journalism. At the time, there were two journalism courses that you could do at City and at Cardiff, but they were really expensive. So that was out of, you know, and you couldn't you couldn't even borrow to get you couldn't get student loans in those days. It's so so long ago. And so that so I I really had no idea. You know, I wanted I love newspapers, uh, you know, and I wanted to write. And, but I also very much, I kind of, I was really lucky. I was a student at a very exciting time when the Berlin Wall came down and, you know, Nelson Mandela was let out of jail and the Soviet Union started collapsing and, and you know, Europe sort of just sort of opened up um, before, you know, before our very eyes. And so I, I was I was very much like, right, I'm so not going to get a career job. I'm going to earn some money waitressing and save up. And then I'm going to, you know, go traveling. And and that's what I did. And, 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 then, and then actually I was lucky enough I won a travel writing competition. And and that gave me this gave that gave me a sort of train to get across Europe. And it also gave me a bit of an in in terms of writing. Actually, I had my first published article in The Independent. And um, and that and that enabled me to get into writing guidebooks. So I had I had sort of a great few years contributing to a guidebook guidebook on the former Soviet Union and uh, the first one to Pro- the Time Out one to Prague, and then I did one on the first kind of post-war book on Lebanon, which I absolutely loved and lived in Beirut 
for I think six months or so and travelled all around the Middle East and got into all sorts of scrapes. I suppose I ought to think about like trying to get some actual career. I was I saw advertised there was a graduate trainee scheme at, at the Telegraph. And I think they just they were just a bit confused by me because afterwards they were sort of like, you know, this was designed for 21 year olds. So and it was quite, I mean, it was quite hilarious because I was not there. I, I was not a natural and obvious choice for the Telegraph in any respect. But they they gave me a place on their graduate training scheme and paid for me to go to um, journalism school up in Newcastle. And I did a stint at PA and then landed in the Telegraph newsroom, actually. I was very fortunate in that way in that I sort of, you know, they gave me, a, you know, a sort of that grounding in news journalism, which, had, although I never wanted to be a news journalist, has, of course, been incredibly helpful um, ever since. So thank you, The Telegraph. So what what age were you then, Carol, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, I think I was I was 25, 26, I think. That's funny. That's when that's when I became a journalist as well. So there's nothing wrong with being old coming to the coming to the party. I mean, it's all come into play now. You know, I was fascinated by authoritarian countries and countries where rule of war, law had broken down completely and you know, the whole sort of post-Soviet space. So, and, you know, and I saw it up close, you know, and learnt my bits of, I mean, I speak it very badly, but I do speak some Russian, I do speak some Arabic, you know. Interesting. So at what point then, Carol, did you move to the Guardian slash the Observer? I mean, so I was in the newsroom at the Telegraph and um, and actually I, I was, I, I, I found a sort of birth doing a sort of travel news stuff over on the travel desk. And that was, you know, I had a great time there and it was sort of, I was, it was every week just sort of finding news stories, but it was also doing sort of stunts and all sorts of silly things. And, but I mean, I think it's, it's fair to say, I mean, the bit of the, the bit of the paper, of course, which I sort of like was most aspirational towards really at that time was probably the foreign desk. But the foreign desk at the Daily Telegraph at that time was sort of like, it was like a sort of offshoot of Eton. I mean, it was very male. It was the idea that Carol from a Cardiff Comprehensive was going to kind of like, you know, find, a, I mean, I just was not, I, I, the Telegraph at that time was sort of run like, it, it was a bit like the sort of armed services or something where the officer class, there was an officer class who sort of, you know, were the senior, the senior editorial level. Boris Johnson was a columnist on the paper at that time. And then there were kind of infantry troops like myself who were a bit more diverse. But um, but there wasn't you know there was never there was never a sort of real mid telegraph I I felt correctly I think and um, anyway I let they they did a they did a voluntary redundancy scheme at some point and so I took a sort of small amount of money and ran and um, and then I wrote a novel I I did I knew about that yes I mean again it was kind of like an incredibly useful thing to do because. You, you know, fundamentally, my sort of one of my primary interests is storytelling and the most effective ways of storytelling. And so I did find I mean, it was a huge intellectual challenge writing this and figuring out form and structure and voice and plots and all that st- sort of stuff. You know, the mechanics of really making things emotional. And so I, I did. It, it did. I do feel it was a sort of useful exercise in that way. But um, anyway, it was after doing that that I, I managed to, I found a little in at the Observer and eventually persuaded them to give me 
my dream job, actually. It was the only kind of job in journalism I sort of wanted at that point, which was a feature writer across the Observer, which was a sort of, you know, newspaper I'd always loved. And yeah, so I, I felt sort of very lucky to fall up there. And and with this sort of mandate, which is because it's so tiny, the Observer, is you do end up writing across all bits of the paper. So it's kind of, you know, it's sort of endlessly interesting in that way. Extraordinary. So it's, it's. I mean, you're very well known, Carol, obviously, for being an uh, investigative journalist, a, a trooper of an investigative journalist. So how did you kind of make that crossover from, from features to really hardcore investigative journalism? Well, it's, I mean, it's totally, I mean, it's very accidental. And it was not, it was not something, I mean, I, and I, I very much, I really didn't understand that what I was doing was investigative journalism, actually. And I kind of look back and see, see actually, well, for, for, for a good sort of 10, 15 years, actually, there had been things which I was doing, which were, were, you know, investigations. But I always looked at it through the optics of, of features. So it was always as much as part about telling the story. You know, that's always been a big part. And, you know, investigative journalists for me were always... They were a sort of exotic breed. I didn't, I didn't know any, and I didn't know what their tricks were. You know, that was the sort of funny thing, actually, when I started on this sort of Cambridge Analytica investigation, is that I sort of endlessly was sort of like writing to people saying, well, well teach me how to be a, a, an investigative journalist. I seem to Really? Yeah, I wrote to, like, David Lee, who was the ex-investigations editor at The Guardian, because he tweeted, he said, this is an amazing piece of investigative journalism. After my first piece, I was like, is it? God. <laughs> that is hilarious, Carl. So you'd actually no idea you'd be you'd just become an investigative journalist. Yeah, and then it turned out, and then funnily enough, actually, I remember I did an interview about a year later. Or I actually I did this interview and I remember listening back to it. And at the time I sort of I very much played it down. I was like, oh, I'm just a future writer who fell into it. But actually I, I kind of thought, well, you know what, that's not actually I mean, I did go undercover at Amazon warehouse, for example, you know, sort of five years previously so well I mean it leads me so easily on to the next question which is you know the the the, the great part of the interview um where whereby you get to talk about a project that's had significant impact um so if you would do us all the kind of honor Carol of talking about your Cambridge Analytica investigation that changed everything I mean, it, it is, it still, it does still sort of amaze me that this, you know, for a long time, Cambridge Analytica was just this sort of like, you know, weird hobby that I had that a few weird hobbyists around the world understood and we talked about. And, you know, on the internet, it was the sort of something as of, of a subject of derision amongst tech journalists, for example. <laughs> you know, people would, there were the tech bros, they deleted a lot of them actually afterwards, but there was a lot of kind of ha ha ha, has Cambridge Analytica succeeded in bending your mind waves? I mean, there was a lot of, there were, um, you know, there was a, there was a, there was an awful lot of people who were very much like the company, it, all companies do that, they didn't do anything special, even as I was sort of gathering this, in, in, you know, incredible evidence actually about all sorts of extraordinary and quite illegal things that they've done I mean it's just it's just been such a long process I mean it's kind of four years in now and there's still like an enormous amount of evidence and material and things which haven't come out and there's still an awful lot more that we need to find out about but on the plus side of it is is that the, you know people do know this 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 funny weird hobby that Cambridge Analytica has now become notorious 
And it did cause Facebook a lot of pain and it continues to cause them a lot of pain. And I think as a result of it, a lot of people did suddenly become aware of the fact that all these this personal information that they give out online is being harvested up by these tech companies and it can be used in invisible and really quite nefarious ways against them. And that, you know, many of the things that we see happening in the world today and the people who are in power are a consequence of that. So, so that's the, that's, the, <laughs> that's the plus side. Just in case our audience don't know what that story is, I, I, I think people will. But Cambridge Analytica um, is a company that you came across that was harvesting millions upon millions of people's data online on Facebook. And as you say, using them in nefarious activities such as, you know, changing our behavioral our behavior and our mindsets um, and, and it, it affected how people voted in the end. And I think, you know, you, you were doing it in the run up to Brexit. Um, so that essentially was a referendum in the dark because we didn't know what was happening. And you exposed all of this, Carol, yourself single handedly. Um, and you had the likes of Cambridge Analytica um, threatening to sue you and Facebook. What Were they threatening to sue you personally or The Guardian, Carol? Cambridge Analytica were both. So Cambridge Analytica were threatening to sue the Guardian Observer and me personally. Yeah, I mean, it was very difficult. It was very serious. And there was moments when we thought we wouldn't be able to continue our reporting. And so I kind of like it is worth remembering that, actually. I published my first articles at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017. And then that, that kicked off these threatening letters from them. And then it took me, I found this uh, Christopher Wiley, this ex-employee who became our whistleblower. But it really was, I worked with him for over a year and during which we were dealing with these legal threats before we could publish the kind of like his further revelations. So there was a huge process involved in in bringing out this story and this evidence. And yeah, and then at the final moment, yeah, Facebook Facebook sent us this threatening legal letter, which was, which was, it was, it was, it was, it's kind of funny because it was this, it was this terrible moment, like the day before publication, all of the hoops we jumped through, we got so far and we're nearly there. And then to have them come along and sort of send us this threatening letter, it was this sort of terrible, terrifying moment of like, oh no. And, and then that really transmuted itself into, Real indignation, actually, on our behalf and anger, actually, because they 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 did this sort of PR stunt against us the, the night before to try and spoil publication after, you know, we go through, I don't know, uh, there's a lot of checks and balances you have to do before you can publish a story like this, including these extensive right to replies. And we'd sent those out in good faith. And then Facebook tried to spike our story the day before and send us this threatening legal letter. I, I, I think it's kind of it's useful sort of like hanging on to some bits of your outrage. And Facebook's behavior through this entire story has been absolutely egregious. There are many aspects of it they still have not been held to account for. So, for example... You know, Facebook was fined $100 million by the SEC in the United States and it settled with them. But it was found guilty, for example, of it, of lying to journalists 
And one of those journalists with Facebook actually lied to about Cambridge Analytica was me. And these tech companies, they get away with so much. And they came out of that with a hundred million fine, which is absolutely nothing to Facebook. You know, and it was it was also as a result of our work was the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission in America, fined record-breaking historic fine of five billion dollars. And you know, so it's extraordinary that journalism can have that impact on the one hand, you know, that could you could see that as some great triumph, but it's not at all because, you know, on the day that Facebook got that record-breaking historic fine of $5 billion, its share price actually went up because, you know, it wasn't worse and Facebook can easily afford a $5 billion fine. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's it's one of the things which kind of absolutely drives me on at the moment is this total lack of accountability, and particularly on behalf of these tech platforms. Well, I mean, I can't even imagine what those meetings were like before the day you published. Um, it must have been, I mean, I've been in meetings where you think you might be sued um, because you're releasing a controversial film, but to be sued by arguably, you know, one of the richest companies in the world is terrifying. Like for you personally, Carol, because it's your reputation on the line, but also for The Guardian, I mean. They were genuinely very, very worried about Cambridge Analytica because, you know, the thing about Cambridge Analytica was that the the ultimate owner of it was Robert Mercer. He's just sort of like, sounds like a mythical figure, I think, these days. But you know he's a multi—he's a multi-billionaire, incredibly clever, and we—we just—I think the the thing which was in everybody's head, and very very ideologically motivated. That's the thing about Rodman. The thing that was in everybody's head was what happened to Gorka. So Gorka was the U.S. magazine, very spiky and out there, and it was secretly taken down by a billionaire, an ideologically motivated billionaire called Peter Thiel who was an ally of Trump, as was Robert Mercer. And so I, there, was this, there was this real example of how an ideologically but motivated billionaire can destroy a news publication. And there was a lot of internal alarm and fear, actually, about what we'd gotten ourselves into. And it was a very, very stressful time. <laughs> Yeah, I have no doubt, Carol. And the thing is, you, 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 you just strike me as such a resilient woman, um, that you've continued to do this. You've continued to fight this good fight. You've referred to the likes of Facebook of, as handmaidens of authoritarianism, um, which is, as we all know now, very, very true. But back then, you know, um, not many people were, were saying that. And, and the work you're doing now, Carol, if you want to kind of delve into that, Facebook have obviously set up their kind of oversight board, but you guys have gone ahead and, and got, you, you're kind of, I do work directly with the real oversight board. Yeah, basically, I've, I've been working with a group of people to set up the real Facebook oversight board as a sort of countermeasure that Facebook set up, Facebook have set up something called the Oversight Board, which is a purportedly independent body, which is going to take purportedly independent decisions on very, very minor issues around content moderation. And um, it's Nick Clegg's special uh, baby, actually, and um, they've invested 130 million into this. 
it's like fake oversight. I mean, they're just, they're just, it's, it's not properly independent. They've selected every single person on it and they're, they're, they've set its terms of references of like what it can, you know, come bring its judgment upon. So, yeah, so I've sort of joined forces with a group of academics and civil rights leaders to create the real Facebook oversight board, which is to, essentially to be a pain in Facebook's side. And in that, it's been very successful in that they tried to destroy us even before we launched um, in various ways. So they, they, they act, they, I mean, the thing is, the good thing about Facebook is they're very predictable in what they do. So, yeah. So you're always one step ahead. Well, we've had we've had Maria Ressa on the podcast as well, who obviously a, a trooper and, and has been co- talking about disinformation for years. And I guess um, she saw, you know, the elections in the Philippines and everything that happened there is kind of a petri dish for Trump and, and what we've now experienced here in the US. Um, but are, are you working quite closely with the likes of Maria on this? Yeah, absolutely. Maria is a kind of key voice that we have on it. And, you know, Maria is, you know, she's she's so incredible in so many ways and is facing off really the kind of powers of darkness in these legal actions which are being taken against her. And um, But, yeah, she saw it. I mean, it's, it is sort of remarkable. I mean, that election in the Philippines, all sorts of stuff happened online. I mean, that was a month, I think, after Brexit. I mean, there are these elections of 2016 that essentially we know we we had we really had no idea at the time how completely vulnerable our democracies were and how this sort of um, this this vulnerability, the tech platforms essentially had sort of created this incredible vulnerability at the heart of our democracy which were enabled bad actors essentially to do all sorts of things and break all sorts of laws um, in a completely dark and uncountable ways. And the fact is, is that, you know, the evidence of what happened in those elections is locked away in Facebook servers and they are still absolutely refusing to give it up. And yes, it felt... I think for sort of four years is that I I was kind of I was really unwilling to give up on that because as far as I was concerned, you know, these really were crime scenes. And I really do feel that Facebook has buried that evidence. You know, future generations, journalists, historians, academics, nobody is able to study what happened. And, you know, this sort of unique historical moment where we saw these forces of populism triumph across the world. And I think we really do understand now much more about the role that the internet played in that. But we're still not able to do the proper investigation that's required. And that continues to sort of disturb and alarm me, actually. And that's very much something I'm still sort of focused on. The Media Tribe podcast is brought to you by Noah, an app I listen to regularly. Like myself, Noah is obsessed with quality journalism and lets you listen to important, curated audio articles from world-class publishers like the Harvard Business Review, the Washington Post, and lots more. Their mission is to help listeners like you understand the big issues, get multiple perspectives, and go beyond breaking news. 
Noah is offering the first 100 Media Tribe listeners one week free plus 50% off. Go to newsoveraudio.com forward slash Media Tribe or hit the link in the show notes to begin your free trial. That's newsoveraudio.com forward slash Media Tribe. And what's more, by supporting Noah, you're massively supporting the Media Tribe podcast and helping me bring you more episodes like this one. Now, back to Carol. And Carol, obviously your TED talk was very famous at the time. Um, it went viral where you called out these tech leaders by name. Do you want to talk us through that and what the lawyer said before that chat? Did they tell you that's a terrible idea, Carol? Or, you know, how did that all pan out? I mean, it's so funny, Sean. I mean, the, 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 the bigger deal was the fact is, is that when I started out on the Cambridge Analytica story is that I... I was absolutely terrified about public speaking and I refused to do public speaking and I always turned down any kind of like media invitations or anything like that and then when I started that was when I, after I wrote the very first story I agreed to go on a panel and was absolutely terrified talking in public is something I really I, I kind of realized I needed to go out and talk about this story but I found it so personally difficult and so the idea that um, I would be able to get up on stage at uh, a TED conference and make that kind of talk it was literally unthinkable. So it was, it was a sort of, it was a huge thing to overcome. You know, the thing about TED Talks is that it's, you have one shot only. You don't have any notes and, and you know it's going to be online forever. So it's like it's a, it's a it's a really really terrifying kind of combination of things in terms of calling out those people is I knew I knew that some of them would be there it's an incredibly powerful um sort of arena an incredible privilege to get that stage to be able to do that and I just knew that I had this sort of like one opportunity to, to try and sort of bring that message home and really and to sort of sum up what this, you know, what I sort of really felt so strongly the threat was and to communicate that. Because I think in America at the time, people weren't saying that. And coming it was, was this thing about coming from Brexit Britain and, you know, understanding the ways that our election had been subverted and the ways, you know, how how absolutely vulnerable the next elections were going to be to similar sorts of distortion, as Shauna, it turned out. Exactly. And I mean, it, it was such a powerful talk. And uh, we will link to that uh, when we release your episode. Everybody also should go and watch The Great Hack on Netflix, um, featuring your good self, Carol, and Christopher Wiley, of course, the, the whistleblower from Cambridge Analytica, um, who obviously took loads of risks to, to, to become that person as well. Um, Carol, last question of the interview. Is there a I'm sure there is a, a crazy moment in your career that maybe nobody knows about that you'd like to delve into. I was trying to think about it. I saw that and I was trying to think about this. And I mean, there's just so much. I mean, like that entire period before we published that story was just craziness personified. And there's there's a lot which hasn't come out about that. But I was I was thinking of one example of that. And I thought the fact that actually I had these sort of very bizarre and surreal encounters with 
Alexander Nix, who's actually the CEO of Cambridge Analytica. So he was the sort of um, old Etonian CEO of Cambridge Analytica, became rather a famous figure. He was revealed in these undercover films, offering to solicit prostitutes and all sorts of things for his clients. I had this, I had this sort of really very close to publication, actually. I found out that I found out about this sort of party cryptocurrency launch in Mayfair that I sort of thought that he might be at because it was his business partners who were throwing it. And so I thought, I thought, oh, I'll go and get a crash and just sort of, you know, going on. And so I went and get, I walked in and the first person I saw at this party was him. And I was like, oh, no. So I sort of, I sort of thought, I sort of ran around the corner in sort of fear. And then I thought, well, he's not going to recognize me. It's not like I'm on television or anything. So, so, so I sort of, so I thought, oh, it's be fine. And so I sort of went, so I sort of sat around the back. Anyway, and then I felt, I was, so I was chatting away to something and I felt this tap on my shoulder. And he said, oh, Carol. And it was Alexander Nick standing there. He said, Carol, it's very interesting to see you. And I, I, I sort of, I reacted in shock. I was, and sort of, I was like, oh no, I've been totally busted. Anyway, and I, I ended up, of course, he was, he was sort of very charming. We ended up having a long conversation. And then I actually ended up going for lunch with him very shortly before we went to publication. And it was this, I haven't written about it, but it was I was it was sort of I was very very conflicted about about whether I should go and meet him, and I was very very aware of these you know huge long right replies that were about to go into his company. So during that lunch, Carol, then I'm assuming that was all off record, and you didn't learn anything new. So at the party when I was having this conversation, so it was this sort of kind of extraordinary conversation with Alexander Nix you know, weeks before publication of this material, whilst he was trying to sue us. And this was being taken very, very seriously by The Guardian. And he said to me, he says, oh, Carol, he said, the thing is, every article you write, he said, we get a whole flurry of new business. It's been wonderful for business, which was this amazing moment because you can't actually sue somebody unless you can show damage to your bit. So it was... I, I was sort of like, I, I, I went home, I have to say, and wrote a memo to my editors immediately and was sort of like, actually, I think this really helps us. Wow, that that's, that is extraordinary. So you, oh my God, what, well, the audacity of, of him to say that. I'm sure he'd, he'd quite the shock in the morning then whenever he got the your, your right of replies and, 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 and you went to publication. I think this thing about coming to investigative journalism, not as a traditional investigative journalism, I, I think maybe I've just struggled with the ethics and complexities of it. I spent a long time interviewing people. That was one of the things that I did. And so I'm always really interested in the sort of psychological and human motivations behind things. And so for me, Alexander Nix was never just some sort of like cartoon baddie doing bad things. I was genuinely intrigued by the sort of bigger picture and I was genuinely conflicted by kind of exposing people and having these really consequential impacts upon their lives and their businesses and the employees and all of the rest of it. I know that some people were sort of who were involved in the story were sort of cheering the air and all the rest of it and I actually I went home the day that I did that, I went home and I reread 
Janet Malcolm's The Journalist and the Murderer. You know, it's all about the troubled ethics of journalism and the role of the journalist. And um, it's something I kind of think about a lot, I think. Well, that just says a lot about you, Carol, as a person and a, as a journalist, as a very ethical journalist. And, and and maybe it was a great thing that you you came to this story not from a traditional investigative background, because I've no, I have no doubt that you were asking very different questions to somebody who'd maybe been covering an investigative beat for years. So, so we are in the position we are in now. We know all about Cambridge Analytica, thanks to your fantastic work and, and, and reporting. Um, and I really encourage all of our audience to go and follow your work um, on, on Twitter and check out the real Facebook oversight board. Um, really, really interesting to follow you guys on Twitter as well. But thank you so much, Carol, for coming on the podcast. It's such an honor. You will go down as one of those journalists in history that that really changed things and, and, and shook the system. So well done you. Oh, thank you, Shauna. That's so kind. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. If you like what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, that's very good news because I'm going to be dropping new shows every week and every month on my new Media Tribe Spotlight series. Also, if you haven't already, make sure to take a listen to previous shows with some legendary folk in the industry. And as ever, please, please, please do leave me a rating and review as it really does help other people find this podcast. Finally, if you do have any guest suggestions, drop me a note on Twitter. I'm at Shauna with a GH or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram. And again, that's with the GH. Right, that's it. See you soon. This episode was edited by Ryan Ferguson.